0: We're closing out our series um, today and looking at the various spiritual weapons. And we could have, as I've said, uh, kind of from the beginning, we could have looked at a bunch of them. We could have just gone through and, and had a six to seven week series just from Ephesians chapter six alone. Uh, we've pointed out, however, um, that we're just going to kind of look at some of the ones that we, uh, some things that don't often get looked at um, in doing some research for, for this week, I found a, a strangely appropriate uh, anecdote. I wasn't actually looking for it, but uh, came across it. Uh, just after Pearl Harbor, um, as we were preparing for war, a dentist in uh, Pennsylvania, who was also kind of a side inventor, that was a gig of his, uh, invented a weapon of mass destruction. Um, and and he submitted it to the Army, and uh, FDR approved it, and we were going to at least explore. Um, There are some strange weapons that have been used in in war, and some successfully, some not so successfully. Um, And this weapon looked like this. That's actually larger than, than, you know, that looks like it's a couple feet tall. It's actually a little bit more significantly sized than that. And uh, it contained no explosives. Well, not exactly. It it, it didn't contain an explosive warhead or anything like that. The the little air holes there, because it contained, it had a thousand containers inside of this thing, and it contained bats. Each bat uh, was, it it had this, uh, it had this, uh, an explosive device uh, an incendiary device attached to it, I know that 's kind of cruel and human- they were they were hoping that the bat would chew it off, you know, but i don 't think they really had much much hope that it was actually going to do that that 's probably that was just probably just a uh, public uh, uh, so, some something to try to, to curry favor with the public but but they were hoping that that these bats would go into the homes of people in japan and, and, and you know, at some time in the morning, like, you know, if they dropped a bunch of these things, you know, you would suddenly overwhelm the the fire department uh, of Tokyo with, with with hundreds of thousands of fires randomly. And they thought, you know, this will probably end the war pretty quickly. You know, people will cry out. Well, what ended up happening was it set a U.S. Army barracks and a, a, a hangar and the generals... Uh, own car on fire and it was pretty much the end of that. Uh, some things not so effective as I said. Um, uh, one that was um, in a few years later as we invented the loudspeaker and uh, in Korea we, we went in and, and began psychological warfare. And it began with just a, a, small little, um, a small little company, I guess they call them. And uh, it was called the, the le- Loudspeaker and Leaflet Company. And they had four loudspeakers. That's all they started with. But it was so successful that they ended up with multiples and multiples of companies. And it ended up being used, uh, probably most famously, by, by Jane Fonda in, in, in Vietnam. But, but it's been used even up to, to helping to get uh, and, and force Manuel Noriega to come out of an embassy... Um, and, and, and surrender just just either torturing but in, in, in korea they didn 't actually torture with people with this thing they they tried to convince them and, and they printed up and, and dropped thousands and thousands of leaflets saying listen if you 'll just surrender, you can get a warm meal in Korea at the close of it, there were seventy five thousand prisoners of war that 's a lot of North Korean prisoners of war that we had taken. And they estimate that about two-thirds of them had willfully surrendered because of this group, which never fired a pistol. Never did anything other than just, hey, and they, they, they would come and, and, and present these little leaflets which said, you will be treated humanely. Here's can get your free meal. <laughs> a powerful weapon. We're talking about a weapon uh, that's kind of similar to that. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, it says, A great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with them. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. And we're going to kind of explore this a little bit this morning. As we look at the, the first bit of that, it seems kind of strange, I suppose, that the, the first thing, we're not going to really dwell on this one, uh, but, but it bears mention because it's the most significant portion of this passage. But much has been talked about the power of blood. But it does seem odd, doesn't it, that that blood would be a successful weapon? Because blood is typically shed when people die, right? And death is typically a sign that things are not going well. We're losing a lot of people in this war. We're not winning that that's typically how we look at it and, and and he says, "Listen, he was thrown down, this enemy was thrown down, and, and the, the the first and the greatest weapon that was was death somebody else's death conquered this person how is how is that possible? How is blood successful? I can give you another illustration if we want to look at it kind of in, in modern in, in maybe a, a, a not modern but in a uh A way that kind of more connects to us as humans. Not sure if you know who Jim and Elizabeth Elliot are. Maybe you've heard the story. Uh, uh, A family. Uh, He he was one of uh, a group of missionaries that went down to I forget the country in South America. Um, But he tried to along with various ones try to convert various tribes. Well they encountered some tribes that were very 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 primitive. And uh, some of them they knew were extremely hostile. And so they would send, they would float down packages of, of things for them and, and then and then they would talk with them over loudspeakers, loudspeakers again, um, from across the river and tried to. And so eventually they, they got into um, this, uh, this, they were able to get into this one tribe. And unfortunately, Jim was one of, of several people. He was one of five people that while they were with this one particular tribe, a neighboring tribe came in and killed them with spears. Uh, But that wasn't the end of the story, because a year later, uh, his wife returned to the same tribe and ended up being a part of that violent tribe's conversion to Christ. Crazy, right? You go, wow. And this is how blood conquers. When people see, wow, wait a second, we did this. We did, this is not the reaction we expect. Blood can conquer, but, but it was not just the blood that conquered these people. But it was a testimony. And that's what we're going to be primarily talking about today. The power of, of testimony. Well, I want to look at two types of testimony. First of all, there is what we would call objective testimony, and we're not going to spend all of our time here, Um, but an objective testimony is a a statement of facts, as as best as you can relay it. Uh, To give testimony, however, supposes that there is an objective truth, there is a fact to be presented. We've been going through, and we're about to finish on Wednesday nights, a, a book that deals with... Uh, whether there's, you know, what's happening to in our society, objective truth, and, and not just in society, but but in the church, what's happening to to the concept of an absolute right or wrong, and and what's happening to preachers who, who don't really want to stick with the objective truth. It's important that we begin in our testimony from. Objective truth. We've talked a lot about my truth, your truth. That's your truth. So we're not going to detail that again. We've talked about that a number of times. But suffice to say that the defeat of Satan depends on an accurate presentation of actual facts. He must be defeated by testimony. We're not going to re-preach the first sermon of this series which was about the sword, the word of God, from which we get this objective truth. Now in that sermon, we primarily were looking at the, if you, if you re- recall, we were looking at the, kind of the, the, the factors and the, 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 the concepts of, of the, the scriptures itself. What, what are the elements <clears throat> that, that make the scriptures so powerful and successful? But um, I, want, I do want to share, I think, two things beyond what, what's in the scriptures that make it, you know, whether it's sharp and, uh, and maneuverable. But I want to talk about confidence, first of all. In, in Revelation, the text we read, it says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And as we said, these two things go hand in hand. They're connected. It's not just that we have a testimony, but it's what the testimony is premised on. And and if it is premised on something solid, we can have a great confidence in it. And our degree of confidence will be visible to those, uh, not just simply because we're familiar with it, but because it has substance. Is the message hearsay? Can I vouch for its accuracy? Can I give evidence of its accuracy? What is my confidence? And that that will come across to a people who are hearing the message. Uh, The second thing he he mentions, John mentions, he says, they loved not their lives unto death. In other words, confidence was exhibited by the fact that they went and laid down their life for it. And again, the the illustration that we began with, with Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, illustrates that, that this was worth something. Many assaults on the scriptures are are really old, actually, and they get turned down again and again. They get regurgitated and and rephrased throughout time. But one thing that cannot be answered ever is the conviction of those who were first in a position, who first had the ability to know whether it was true or not. That commitment to it. That that they all died. That the people who were in a position to know. And not benefit from it. Stuck with this message. And said. You can kill me. But I'm going to say this. till till the last breath I take. That commitment. Means something. And it can't be argued. There is value. In this. Objective testimony. What <clears throat> I want to really get to is our personal testimony. We call this subjective testimony. The word subjective is not a negative word. <clears throat> I didn't go hiking yesterday, Micah. I, I <clears throat> but we're in the same boat. Subjective Accounts are incredibly potent. If presented correctly, they are also hard to argue. When you argue, this is my perspective, it's hard for me to go, no, it's not. I can't say that's not your perspective. That it, it is what it is. This is my experiences. Those are so valuable. I mean, and people haven't an appealed to that. Most, most of your news stories and, and, and things like that are what we call human interest stories. Why they, they, They're based on subjective things that happen. They, they, they are powerful to people. The only way you can argue it is to say, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, I, I was there and, and I, I, I know what happened and that person's story is wrong. I suppose if you were there and witnessed it and said, no, that actually wasn't there. And that, that, or I was there. And, and that, that story is inaccurate. Yeah. I suppose you could argue a personal story from that perspective, or you could say, listen, here is an objective truth. We could go back to the objective truth and say, it's impossible for this, for this story to have actually occurred. I, I <clears throat> worked with a guy who, um, uh, he claimed, or I had a Bible study with him, I was in college still, and, and um, he, he said that Jesus Christ appeared in his kitchen and punched him across the room. Well, I know that didn't happen. Just objectively, I know that that didn't happen. Like, well, it's like, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but it didn't happen. You might really be convinced that that happened. I don't know what state you were in, or I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know about what happened in that room because I wasn't there but I know one thing that didn't happen <clears throat> there are two concerns that we have because a personal testimony can be extremely dangerous um, first of all is accuracy Proverbs eighteen seventeen says that that <clears throat> one man's story seems right right up until the time you hear the other guy's story right It can seem powerful, but it has sometimes because it's subjective, it has a problem in 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 whether it's reliable. Our perspective is our perspective. And two people can see the same thing, the same event from a different perspective, and, and one may not be accurate right a car accident oh, i think this guy was turning left i think this guy was doing it it all depends from where you were from where you were where was i i don't know perspective is a tricky thing <clears throat> those observations get filtered even when we're well meaning Even when we're not trying to be deceptive, we're well-meaning. Our observations, the things that I've experienced, have to get filtered through my brain. And my brain has to come up with a way of explaining all the factors that this has. And so the second thing that makes it dangerous is priority. The way my brain prioritizes information, now, now your brain, no matter, you can sit there and look at this picture, and there's no way your brain is ever going to conclude that the, the girl on the left is taller than the girl on the right. You will never conclude that. Your brain can't. Because your brain operates on certain principles, and it prioritizes certain things that appear to be perspective, but that's all, that's all a trick, right? Right? It's a trick, and and this is the danger of our perspective. When we, because of the way our brains work, when when we prioritize what is subjective over what is objective, it will become dangerous. And and similarly, when my personal story and the things that I've experienced, when those seem real when I prioritize them over that factual, objective truth, then it will be dangerous. Now, I say that to set up why, what we want to get to today. Why this testimony was capable of, of defeating Satan we, we always place the, the emphasis on Christ defeating Satan but that's not exclusively what what he said he said listen the blood did but it was through the, the working of the testimony people's testimony that this was accomplished yes the, the actual defeat happened at the cross but that's Not exclusively the mechanism. That there is our involvement in the defeat of Satan. And that makes us feel nervous. Like I'm kind of saying something about myself and and being a little bit too high or proud or too big for my own riches kind of a thing. But God says no. Satan was defeated by their testimony. Testimony. So let's look at four ways to use personal testimony correctly. Because the scriptures are full of personal testimony. Probably none more than the Apostle Paul. We're going to actually not begin with Paul, we're going to begin with Peter in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to look at four things that really quickly that personal testimony is very potent, very capable to destroy what Satan's trying to accomplish. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem the circumcision party, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order and and so he begins from this point and he gives his personal testimony there's a controversy there's something going on man Satan loves to work through division he loves people to be at each other wait you can't do that and that's what's going on in Acts chapter 10 and 11 because he's gone up and he's he's converted Gentiles he's baptized Gentiles for the first time this is a big deal I know a guy, I've probably used this illustration before, and he he went and preached, or he was invited to preach in in Louisiana. And uh, the elders of one of the congregations there said, so uh, what would you do if you had a study with a black man? said We baptize him, and now we tell him he needs to come every week and take communion. He was not invited to be the preacher of that church. Imagine the first time someone brought a black man into that church as a Christian. What would happen? Now you get a feel for what Peter is going through. The first time a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, is brought into a church and given equal footing. We now have the taste. And so now he has to go through and give his personal testimony of why this is. Unfortunately, it's Peter. It's going to be kind of hard to argue with Peter. Peter, (laughs) huh? This is what God told me, and we know the story. We know the whole thing. It's basically, Acts chapter 11 is just a retelling of Acts chapter 10. The power to confirm that objective truth. Now, they should have known some stuff. There's plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Gentiles being brought in. There's all sorts of scriptures. I, I mean, amongst the last words that Jesus says, says go into all the world and preach and make disciples of all nations. Now all nations is going to mean there's people there that aren't you. They should have known that. Sometimes our personal testimony is, re- is called upon to confirm what people should already know. And that's the first use of it. The second one, Acts chapter 20, now we get into Paul. He says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you for the, the, uh, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. But Asia, he means Asia Minor, what would be Turkey today. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except... That the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, <clears throat> he's on his way back from, from uh, I want to say his third tour. And he's, he's down going down the border, Long Turkey. And he, he's uh, inviting some of the elders from one of the congregations, I believe Ephesus, to come to him. He's, gonna, he's like, this is kind of the last time I'm probably going to see you. And this uses his personal testimony. You know how I lived among you the whole time. He calls to their remembrance some things to reassure them. Now, this doesn't sound like a reassuring message. Listen, the Holy Spirit tells me I'm going to jail. That's not reassuring. Yes, it is. Because God has told me ahead of time that He knows what's going to happen to me. I'm assured. I know He's got it. This is not, when you see this happen, it, it, it shouldn't come as a shock to you. God has foreseen it and has been able to tell me this ahead of time. His personal story was able to, to help me. Listen, have confidence in God. We can use our, our personal testimony, can be something that can be used. Listen, I was in this situation. You know, you remember this situation. Sometimes, sometimes we use that to, to reassure people of something. Maybe they've forgotten it, or, or maybe they're in a circumstance where it's hard to, even though I remember, uh, you know, Andy talked about going back and, and the way our memory goes back in time. And and filters out some things. Sometimes people forget all the good stuff, and they remember just the bad stuff. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that God is in control of things. And personal testimony can do that. The third thing, Acts chapter twenty-two, verse one through five. <clears throat> Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And we'll kind of skip a little bit. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, zealous for God, just as you are. In fact, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And this, this whole chapter is a retelling of Paul's conversion story. The actual event happens in Acts chapter 9. And he goes through this in front of all these, these people. And it's interesting that, that uh, he, he uses this story again as a shortened version. I, I imagine in the actual event, it probably was just as long when he's before Agrippa. He tells his story again. That's Acts chapter 26, same story. And he used his story to try to persuade people. To try to convince people to make a change, whatever the change was. It's interesting that here, both in Acts 22 and in then Acts 26, the same thing happens that he almost did. They were listening to him. I mean, here he is standing in front of a bunch of Jews. Lifelong Jews like he had been. And he almost convinced a whole group of people. Imagine how... Incredible that would have been to be standing here in in the middle of Jerusalem and convinced a bunch of leaders of this religion that would have been shockwaves throughout the Jerusalem population. And then he said that one word, Gentiles, and they just couldn't go any further. Just couldn't go any further. Of course the statement he makes to Agrippa or or I should say that Agrippa makes to him, almost thou persuadeth me. Remember that? That statement. He almost got one of the Herods. He came so close to even convincing one of the Herods, one of the, the, the relatives of the men who tried to kill Jesus, uh, one who tried to kill him as a As a baby, one who successfully was a part of Jesus' assassination, those were relatives to Herod Agrippa. And he almost persuaded one of them to become a Christian through his personal testimony. That's how powerful your testimony is. Hard to argue. Fourthly, here he's writing a personal testimony doesn't always have to be spoken. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 7, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As it pertains to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to my zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. We've kind of seen some of these common elements of his, of his story. <coughs> As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he tries to connect to people. Now, as I said, we've seen all of these elements in his other stories. He doesn't make stuff up to connect. But he uses what he has to try to develop some type of camaraderie from which he can get people to grow this is the value of our of our personal story it, it makes us real we're not just encyclopedias of information that a, a personal story helps bring something to life a personal testimony it makes us as some people say authentic uh, in fact there's a story i've used it before the old old politician was He's been in office for a long time and is in his state or whatever. It's just a made up illustration. And a young one, like, how, how did you become so successful? He says, well, you have to be authentic. He says, as soon as you learn to fake that, you got it made. <laughs> but the reality is that people see through it typically. Most people see through it. It's hard to fake authenticity. Because eventually when you're doing that, you're, you're making up stuff somewhere. You want to connect with someone. Oh yeah, I remember that. And it comes out. Someone does the research, especially in this day and age. I mean, everything you've said or done is somewhere. So so that's another danger of our, our personal testimony. But, but when we can use our testimony, we can... very powerfully establish relationships. And we foster that closeness that makes the objective testimony much more powerful. Remember, these are tools. These aren't aren't the, the information that will change their lives. These are the tools... That we will have that allow this to do the work. That allow the blood of Christ to do the work. It's not my testimony that changes people. But it's my testimony that cultivates the soil, so to speak. That allows people this, this opportunity for this to germinate. That's the part that defeats Satan. So as we... <clears throat> Closed We have a new driver in our house. condolences. And one of the things that we do we get in the car are you familiar with things like where the gas pedal is We've, we've had to keep your heel down, don't pick it up because we, we've been way. <laughs> we've done that a few times. Familiarize yourself with your, so, sometimes it's confusing. That's an actual car, by the way. I was, something, you can be overwhelmed. I had a car, it started raining, and I, I, I wasn't, I didn't familiarize myself. It started raining after I started driving it, and I wasn't familiar with it, and I did not know how to turn the windshield wipers on. True story. It was confusing. I'm like, ah, I'm pushing everything. Everything's going except the windshield wipers. I'm like, I'm going to get in an accident. It was sheets of rain. Like I I couldn't even slow down to the side of the road. I was afraid I was going to drive off the side of the road. Fortunately, it was probably much shorter period of time than it felt. We need to be familiar. Three things we want to familiarize ourselves with. First of all, our audience that we're trying to connect. Listening for, for the things that, that I can possibly connect to. What are their concerns? What are their interests? What are ways that, without being fake, what are the ways that I can actually connect with them? In a deep way. That's the first thing. Familiarize myself with... My goals. What are my goals in this relationship? I, I hear this all the time and I, I, don't, I don't like it. People criticize the idea... Well, you're just looking at them as a potential convert. As though that's a bad thing. I realize people are humans. And that we should value them as humans beyond, you know, that if they decided not to become a Christian, they're still humans. They could still be my friend. I get that. But primarily, it's like it's some noble thing or some some really wonderful thing that we should stop looking at people as... People who need Christ. No, that, that should be the primary way I look at people. Maybe that's one of the things that that has impacted the church negatively is that we stop looking at the need. That we just look at people as people to interact with. Maybe we need to look more at people in terms of our goals, familiarize ourselves with my goals. What is my goal in this relationship? Primarily, is it to be friends? To hang out? Or is it primarily to show Christ to this person? Now, the third thing is going to sound strange, to familiarize yourself with yourself. Familiarize yourself with yourself. Do you know your own story? What I mean by that is, Can can, can you off the top of your head relate to people in different situations how God has impacted your life? Can you tell people how something happened or or what things, what events, what situations, what people came into your life? And how those things actually moved you from where you were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago to now? We just kind of live accidentally through our lives and, and never make those things. And Paul was right there. Here's the situation. Here's, here's this thing that happened. Here's, here's this situation in my life that fits. Wow. And, he, and so he could do that and be authentic. He didn't have to make stuff up because he was in tune with himself and, and how that related to the group of people that he was trying to connect to. I'm all things to all people. Well, in order to do that, you have to know the parts of yourself that connect to the different groups of people. It's, it, it's a word that I say it so much, it's cliche. It's being deliberate in our lives. And in our faith. And this is the power of testimony. It, it, again, it's not that my ability is so wonderful... It is Christ, but it is Christ working through me that will impact Satan most dramatically.